Built Not Born, episode 128. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Robin Waterfield. Robin Waterfield is a British classical scholar. He is the author of more than 40 books. He's a translator. He's an editor. He specializes translating ancient Greek philosophy into modern day language. Robin studied the classics at Manchester University, went on to research ancient Greek philosophy at King's College in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Robin and I discuss one of the most famous books ever written, The Meditations of the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. If you haven't read that book, if you don't have a copy, you should. It is wild how this book, written 2,000 years ago by a Roman emperor, a personal diary that he never wanted published, that was uh, found after his death, made it to the modern day. It is so relatable, so readable, especially with Robin's new translation. Uh, Robin does a modern day translation from basic books that just came out. It is a self-help book. It is a business book. It's a leadership book. It's an anger management book. It's basically the writings of Marcus Aurelius when he was emperor. He wrote notes to himself to calm himself down, how to be a better person, how not to abuse the power he was in. He was the emperor of the world at the time. He ran the world 2000 years ago. And it's his personal diary on how to be a better person. And for somehow it made it to the modern day and Robin translates it in an annotated edition. It's almost like he's your tour guide to walk you through the book, what Marcus Aurelius is trying to say. For those of you that have seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, the old emperor who dies in the beginning, that is Marcus Aurelius. Anyway, I was honored to get Robin on the show. He joined us from his farm in southern Greece, overlooking the ocean and his olive trees. So cool. Anyway, Robin, if you're listening, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor to speak with you. If you can, pick up a copy of The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, Robin's latest book. It is awesome. Robin's been on some huge podcasts. So honored that he came on Built Not Born. If you like what you hear please hit that follow button or share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Robin Waterfield as we discuss the meditations of the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And remember, life is built, not born. Robin Waterfield, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Joe. It's good to uh, meet you. Robin, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Okay, my name is Robin Waterfield. I'm what is called an independent scholar, which means that I do academic work, but I'm not attached to a university or a college or anything. And, and that's what I do. I, I write books. In, in my time, I've written all sorts of books, but at the moment, it's almost entirely on uh, ancient Greek stuff, either history or philosophy, really. Um, and I live in southern Greece in order to do this. Wow, that's, that sounds phenomenal. Robin, what I like to do is get into your work. My introduction to your work, I heard of you, but when this came out, your annotated edition of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is just phenomenal. It's like two books in one. It's the meditations just so 
Uh, it's my favorite translation of it. And I just love it's annotated. I feel like I would read it before and I'm kind of, sometimes I don't know what they're trying to say, but now like almost you have like a guide. It's almost like when I went to the Coliseum with my family last year, like you had a guide, you could go through it yourself or you could go with a guide and they can tell you what you're looking at. And it just totally brings it alive and your annotations bring this alive. So what I'd like to do is get into Marcus Aurelius, the meditations, some stoicism, if that works for you. Okay, absolutely. Let's go for it. Cool, cool. Let's do this. For our listeners, let's start back all the way from the beginning. Who was Marcus Aurelius and what are the meditations? Well, uh, the answer to the first question is somewhat surprising for anybody who doesn't already know it. Marcus Aurelius, the author of this famous book, The Meditations, was the emperor of Rome from 161 to 180, and therefore the wealthiest and most powerful person in the Western world. Meditations, sometimes called To Himself, is a collection of 12 notebooks in which Marcus wrote down his private thoughts about himself and life but mainly about himself. However, it's interesting that he never names those others when they are his contemporaries. So perhaps he thought there was a chance that his journals wouldn't remain private, but he certainly intended them to be private. One of the things I find so remarkable about the meditations, for those who've never seen it or read it, it is so relevant to today. Like you would think someone who ruled the ancient world 2000 years ago that and wrote something down would have absolutely no relevance to today. But you read this, it's like some, it's almost like a CEO of Apple or Google writing down their thoughts of what concerned them. Like it, it could go right into that world and fit perfect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I have college notebooks, uh, college photo books that I, that I've took that I can't find. Like we have a spring break or like a, like my sophomore year, I lost those photo books. So how did the meditations, a journal from the emperor of Rome 2,000 years ago, survive to the present day? How's that possible? I mean, it must have, I think it was a kind of miracle. I mean, it's possible that already by the time of Marcus's death, the notebooks were kind of sewn together into some kind of unity. But Marcus died while out on campaign fighting Germanic tribes in Central Europe. So someone, a friend or a servant perhaps, found them and kept them safe. I say friend or servant because I can't imagine that his horrible son Commodus did it. <laughs> anyway, but after that, there's uh, interestingly, after that, there's hardly a trace of the book. So we really don't know what happened to it. There was There's very little sign over the subsequent centuries that it was being read. There are one or two references to something by Marcus Aurelius, which are probably references to it, but even they're a little vague. And then in the 10th century, it gained a new lease of life, and um, at least on life, I should say, to be pedantic. And um, we get uh, more and more people, increasingly more people reading it after then. And so you, you mentioned Commodus, his son. And for those maybe that ne haven't grabbed a copy, haven't read Meditations yet, Marcus Aurelius is the, the emperor in the Ridley Scott's movie, The Gladiator, with Russell Crowe. And I think in the movie they had a son kill him, which but that that's not historically accurate, right? Where, where his son smuggled. I'm, him I'm pretty life. sure it's not. I think they hinted that he did it. I'm not sure. I can't remember the movie well enough to say that it was actually shown on the screen, but I think they hinted that he did it. And and uh, so then his son Commodus. Well, we'll get into it later. Unlike Marcus, was a total train accident as a emperor. But 
So Marcus, let's go back to Marcus. When did you, as a scholar, first discover Marcus Aurelius? Do you remember the first time where you pick up the meditations? Professionally, I was uh, the philosophy that I studied, the ancient Greek philosophy that I studied was earlier than, than the Roman Stoics. I chiefly, did, I chiefly studied the Presocratics, Socrates, and Plato. So I was late coming to Marcus Aurelius. I know I read something when I was young, but I don't remember what it was. And I don't remember, I don't think it was the full text. So then I first really read him in the early 1990s. But in Maxwell Staniforth's Penguin translation, which is truly appalling. But that was because an editor at Penguin asked me to do an abridgment of the translation for a series of very short books they were publishing. The, the, so, yeah, early 1990s. 1990s. So, like, you've done work on Socrates and Plato, and I understand Epictetus, and you have some great work on Alexander the Great. So, like, of all, like, how did you decide to tackle this project? Like, there's so many translations out there, some unreadable, some, a lot of them in like the era, like being an un, being untrained as I am, but like, you look at it like the one from the 1700s is like unreadable. It's like in the 1700s language in English. I, I'll start with this question. How did you decide to tackle this project of all the places you could go? Um, well, I was approached by the publisher. It wasn't, as it were, uh, an idea that I myself generated. Basic Books got in touch with me, and right from the outset, they were clear that they wanted it to be. They want. They wanted it to be different from other translations, not just because they expected me to do a better translation, but also because they asked for it to be the annotated edition. So they wanted me to write all those notes as well. Yeah, and that's it. So, so the, the project landed on my desk, and I was, of course, delighted. How I think your book stands out to the other, I think the other translation I'm familiar with is the Hayes edition, which is good, but what it doesn't provide is, it's almost like your book is almost like a tour guide, where the annotations are like the guide where you read something, like, I don't know what that means, and right underneath it is like the guide, is you explaining what he's trying to say or where that comes from, which is really cool. So it's almost like two books in one. When you wrote it, did you feel like you're, it was like two books in the one book? Did it feel like that when you wrote it? <laughs> yes, in a, in a sense. But there's also, I mean, in quite a, quite a few of my books of the past have, I mean, like when I translated Plato's Republic in the 1990s, the introduction I wrote for that was 100 pages long and the notes were another 100 pages long. So <laughs> I often uh, um, get carried away, should we say, with writing notes and things. In any case, I like to explain things to the reader. And I think actually the introduction itself, I think, is worth the book itself. Like if you just if you someone took out the meditations that you translated, which are awesome, and just had your introduction, the introduction itself is so good. Here's one question that'll tie it into your introduction. How do you think it's so possible that someone who ruled the world 2000 years ago could write something so relatable to people today? How is that even possible? Well, I think because people's minds and hearts don't change all that much, mm -hmm. something like that, I suppose. And also, in particular, because Marcus is very often showing himself to be a flawed human being or, or not as good a person as he expects himself to be and wants himself to be. And uh, we can relate to that because we're flawed people ourselves. And I would also add another point, a third point, that the core of Marcus's teaching, which actually quite, you know, drums into us, as it were, or drums into his readers, not that he was expecting readers, but drums into us by repetition. The core is actually very straightforward. I would phrase it as something like, 
accept what you can't do anything about and what you can change for the better. Mm. And I think people, I think the, sim the simplicity and obvious rightness of that is very attractive to people. From the introduction, here's a sentence I underline that I think explains what you just said is why the meditations are so widely read today is because no one is perfect and we recognize ourselves in the flaws of Marcus and his aspirations. Yeah. Yeah, that's well put. How about this? Why do you think Marcus goes against the rule that absolute power corrupts? It looks like the absolute power when you gave him actually made him a better person. Like sometimes you put people in charge and you see their true... I think it was Abraham Lincoln, uh, the 16th president of the United States said, if you want to see what a man's made of, give him like absolute power. Like that'll show you exactly but, but there, what that there's, there's actually a, That's actually an ancient Greek who originally said that. He made it a very pithy statement. He said, office reveals the man. Yes. <laughs> how do you think someone like, like, why are some people made better? Why do you think he was made better? Like, what do you think? Well, I don't, I don't, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, Joe, honestly. We can mine Notebook One to a certain extent and his letters to, uh, he wrote, we have extant some letters that he wrote to one of his teachers, Fronto. Um, so we can, we can see something about what he was like as a youngster. And I think he was already, you know, a very moral person. He was able to resist sexual allure. And I'm going to say things like 114. And for readers who don't understand that, I'm referring to book one, notebook one of the meditations, entry 14. Mm -hmm. So a phrase in 114 is relevant here. One of the ideas he said he gained from one of his teachers was, the idea of a monarchy that chiefly prizes the freedom of its subjects. So the notion of being an equitable ruler was an early acquisition to him. Mm -hmm. And then he had the model of Antoninus Pius's moderate rule. That was the previous emperor who, was, who he admired hugely. And so at that point, the start of 630 becomes very interesting. 630. Very famous phrase. He says... Beware of becoming Caesarified, dyed in purple. It does happen. And so he made up this word Caesarified to express, to tell himself not to become like Julius Caesar. In other words, not to become a dictator. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing that he felt he had to say that. He had to say, beware of becoming Caesarified. So, you know, maybe there was a bit of temptation. I mean, we know that, and I'll probably come back to this because it's a very you know, marked feature of meditations, we know that he did not get on, we didn't like quite a lot of the people that he had to deal with in the course of his imperial duties. And I think he, there's an, I didn't take a note of this, but there is another entry in one of the notebooks that suggests that, he uses the word tyrannical, which suggests that uh, one way he wanted to respond to these unpleasant people was, as it were, by telling them to shut up, just taking control and being slightly tyrannical so maybe there was maybe there was a bit of temptation maybe the absolute power didn't corrupt him but was you could feel that it could have corrupted him if he'd been a different person something like that yeah maybe that's why he's writing notes to himself to calm himself down constantly you know <laughs> yeah well it's uh, one of, yeah it's one of the reasons yeah yeah journaling can do that um how about this how remarkable do you think it is that I think this may be the only time in history where we have one emperor of the world one Roman emperor writing specifically about another, like his Antoninus Pius, the one who came before him, like all other sources 
from that, from my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, or like people's perspective and gossip, like we have one emperor writing about another emperor. Like that's pretty cool. It's very cool. But the other main sources are historians, and some of them are pretty reputable. But it is indeed remarkable and very important for historians of Imperial Rome, because as you say, it gives us a different perspective in Antoninus Pius than we find in books written by Roman historians. Historians give his deeds, Marcus gives his character. And for those who don't know, Joe and I are referring to 630 and one something, one of the late entries in Book One where Marcus describes Antoninus Pius. The first book he kind of thanks is a whole bunch of gratitude, right? Like the notebook one, it's kind of like he talks about all the, maybe a tenth of the book is just all this gratitude and thanks of his mom, his dad, his grandparents, his teachers. So he was made emperor, the emperor Hadrian, two in front of him, right? Basically kind of set, why don't you explain it, how he became, how Hadrian made Antoninus Pius adopt him and he chose him to be the future emperor. Could you explain that? First, it was uh, Hadrian who more or less adopted him, but the co-emperorship between Marcus and his stepbrother, Lucius Verus, was planned first by Hadrian, and for for Hadrian, Lucius Verus was the senior of the two, and then by Antoninus Pius, who made Marcus the senior of the two. So that's not too strange in, in a Roman context. And then with that, though, with Hadrian putting him to a fast track of the throne, why don't you yeah. think he, Hadrian is not mentioned anywhere in his gratitude or thanks? From your perspective, um, why do you think that happened? Why do you think that is? He doesn't thank Hadrian at all. I don't know. I mean, it's very weird. Hadrian is mentioned five times in meditations, but all the mentions are about how People, famous people from the past are now no longer existing, and that's going to happen to all of us sooner or later. And that's the only times he mentions Hadrian is in that context. If I had to guess, well, Marcus was a bit of a prude, and I would say he quite strongly disapproved of Hadrian's homosexuality. Okay. That's a sheer guess. Okay. Interesting. How about this? Stoicism. There's a bunch of schools of philosophy out there at the time. There's so many branches of philosophy out there. What do you think initially attracted Marcus to Stoicism of all the other schools out there? How do you land there? Well, I think we actually get an answer to that at 1.6. So he's thanking one of his teachers called Diognetus, and at the end he says, being drawn to the palate, the skin coverlet, and everything else that goes with the Greek-style upbringing. So the palate and, and the straw mattress. So what it, what attracted him was certain asceticism. The Stoics were nowhere near as ascetic as the Cynics, but they were quite ascetic, quite strict with uh, how to control oneself and one's habits and one's life. Um, so it looks as though it was the ascetic aspects of Stoicism that attracted him. But, and perhaps, I mean, remember, he was being brought up in the lap of luxury close to the palace, so perhaps it was a counterbalance to perhaps the asceticism, a counterbalance that he valued to the luxury with which he was surrounded as a child. Mm. But then the next entry journals after 1-6, one 1-6 uh, one to, one to 9, are all thanking the teachers who introduced him to Stoicism. And they show that it was also the caliber of the people he was meeting that, that he liked. And I, I think one of the things that attracted most people to Stoicism was the orderliness of the universe. 
which I, I can't go into in, in detail now, but the Stoics did come up with a very structured and orderly universe guided by divine providence uh, for everyone mm -hmm. uh, at an individual level as well as at a humankind level. So I think that I think he might have found that attractive as well, but that's only a guess. Mm. Speaking of influences, from your perspective, even though they probably never met, do you feel Epictetus was Marcus's biggest influence in philosophy? Absolutely. Marcus quotes Epictetus more than any earlier thinker, and he uses the, the key phrase in Epictetus is some things are up to us and some things aren't, mm. which is his way of saying exactly what I said earlier, that the key message of Marcus's was. Mm -hmm. But Marcus uses this key phrase of Epictetus's more than any other Stoic term. And actually, I'll go further than this and suggest that quite a lot of the references to other thinkers are actually gleaned either from Epictetus, quite a lot of them we know are gleaned from Epictetus, or from Marcus's memories of what other Stoic writers had to say about earlier thinkers like Socrates and Plato and so on. For, oops. He quite often misremembers passages from Plato, so he wasn't looking them up. And I think there's a quite straightforward reason for that. He was The notebooks were written during, the ten, during 10 years when Marcus was almost entirely out on campaign in Central mm -hmm. Europe. I doubt he had much of his library with him. And so I, th I think this is why he was misremembering his Plato and so on. He's doing it from memory. So he's literally... He's, he's doing it from memory, or as I say, he's doing several of the stories that he tells about Socrates aren't found in Plato or Xenophon. So they're, they're probably, they, they probably came to Marcus filtered through an earlier Stoic writer, and the earlier Stoic writer probably got it from a Socrates biography, because there were several of those written, none of which survived. Mm -hmm. um, but there were several of those written. So, so I think he wasn't, I think he wasn't getting especially since, as I say, he was out of campaign, he wasn't getting quite a lot of his stuff directly. He was getting from Epictetus or other Stoic writers, because I suspect he had, you know, let's say at least the bulk of his Stoic library with him. And how crazy is it that the emperor of Rome, who ruled the world, their main influence was a slave in the court of the emperor, maybe a few before that, before him, how crazy is that? A slave, you know, maybe 50 years before him, is the biggest influence to the emperor of the world. Yeah, How I know. Crazy is that? That's great. <laughs> but it's very stoic. Yeah. Because oh it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or an emperor. You simply have to, you know, play the hand that you've been dealt. That's play the hand you've been dealt. That is so, that's so. And anyway, Epictetus, he was freed when he was about, I think, 20-ish, sometime around then. Okay. Understood. How about this? So here's another of, like, say, the big three, just from my perspective in Stoicism. It's Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca. Mm -hmm. What happened to Seneca? Why do you think you don't see Seneca mentioned anywhere in the meditations? I have no idea. And I find it particularly odd because Marcus clearly didn't like Nero, who was the emperor who banished Seneca or forced him to commit suicide eventually. Mm -hmm. At 316, Marcus pairs him with a tyrant called Phalaris, who was a tyrant of legendary cruelty. And he, he, that's the person he pairs Nero with. Mm -hmm. And it's also odd because Marcus mentions at least some of the other stoically inspired republicans who resisted emperors or would be emperors. Mm -hmm. And one of those he mentions is a man called Thrasea, who, like Seneca, was forced to commit suicide by Nero. 
So, I mean, there can be no, absolutely no doubt that Marcus had read Seneca, but certainly knew of him, but he doesn't mention him once. Yeah. I find that's, I mean, just being a, just being an average person reading this and reading Seneca, who's so readable today, like, you know, that letters from a stoic, you read that, like, it's just poetry. Like it, you yeah. run out a highlighter. If you want to highlight like little quotes <laughs> out of that, like you need like three highlighters to do a Seneca book still in the modern day. Use the, do you use the new Chicago translations? Oh, where's my copy's not near me. It's it, letters from a stoic. Is it from penguin? Maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, that one. Yes, yes. No, Chicago University of Chicago Press has done a, an excellent, complete works of Seneca in new translations. Oh, really? Rather, expen rather expensive to buy the complete works, but so it's, it's very, all of his writing good. in one spot. It's all of his one, really. All of his writing in a, in about seven volumes, I think. Really, University of Chicago. Okay, awesome. Yeah. I've looked that up. Thank you. How about this? How certain are you after translating the, uh, the document? How certain are you that this is the complete work? Does it seem that any sections are missing or got, got lost? What do you see when you go over the, the documents? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the complete work. When, when you translate a book, you get very sensitive to this kind of subcurrent in books. You get very intimate with your author. And I detect, especially in the final 12th notebook, I detect signs that Marcus knew his death was approaching. He was consumptive all his life, and so I think you get to monitor your health pretty well when you're consumptive, when you've got tuberculosis. Mm. And I think he knew his death was coming, and I think the 12th is definitely the last notebook. However, we are missing some other jottings of his. At um, 3.14, he mentions a, um, a commonplace book. Um, a commonplace book, for those who don't know, is where you jot down interesting quotes and things that ideas that attract you uh meditations is used partly as a commonplace book for things that marcus likes the morality of quotations that he liked for that reason um but we don't have his commonplace book we don't have a series of notes on history that he was writing possibly to educate commodus i think i can't remember what else he mentions in 314 but we don't have the complete works, the complete jottings, as it were, of Marcus Rudis. We have meditations there. Mm -hmm. It was so amazing that that survived. Yeah. How about this big picture question? After reading his literally diary of an emperor, you're reading his personal diary. Do you yeah. think that Marcus enjoyed being emperor of Rome? Not a bit of it. Yeah, nah, I'm with you. <laughs> but with, with this qualification that... As you, as you can tell from reading Meditations, he was going to strive to be the best possible emperor he could. Mm -hmm. And so when you do, when you are good at something, there is a certain degree of enjoyment there, I suppose. But no, basically no. But as I said, as a Stoic or would-be Stoic, he, he had to play the hand he did, which he states on more than one occasion, is that it prevented him from being a philosopher, prevented him from making further progress as a Stoic. And the Stoics are obsessed with progress and all the signs that you could have of progressing. Mm -hmm. And he also hated the work because a major part of it would have been dealing with people's problems, receiving petitions, negotiating, uh, whatever. And he certainly is clear from meditations that he disliked at least some of the people he had to deal with. The start of 2-1 is the famous yeah, that quote. Did you read that? That's that's where I was going next. Yeah, though. I'll find that. It's such a great quote. And it's Who so relevant today. He says, at the start of the day, tell yourself, 
I shall meet people who are officious, ungrateful, abusive, treacherous, malicious, and selfish. So, you know, that's that's what he thought of, of the people he had to work with. And at another point, he calls them liars and crooks. And yeah, so I'm sure he didn't enjoy being emperor at all. That sounds like someone who does not like their job heading into work <laughs> on Monday morning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and philosophy, he says at one point, was his refuge. Yep. So clearly, you know, refuge from all the stuff he had to do as emperor. I think he'd be, he'd be just as happy being at home, reading a book and being away from and not being in charge of the whole world. How about this? Speaking of sources and translations and history that makes it from an ancient world, I heard you mention in other interviews that you think Plutarch is a good source of ancient history, but the history of Augusta is not. Could you explain your thoughts there? Well, first, of course, Plutarch is irrelevant to Marcus. He's not a source for Marcus at all. The Historia Augusta is rated very, very poorly by scholars. It appears to be a compilation, probably by more than one person, put together around the year 400, and it is notoriously inaccurate and gossipy. Funny enough, just the other day, I was reading a, a review of a book on Heliogabalus, who was the Roman emperor from 218 to 222. And who was a, one of, not, one of, he was a crazy, right? Like he was nuts. Well, right? no, no. He's been, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> He's been resurrected as a nicer yeah. person. Because again, the Historia Augusta, yes, shows him to be exactly the notorious, almost legendarily cruel and sexual, depraved monster. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's all that is from the Historia Augusta. And it's now known to be false. I mean, I'm not saying he was sexually a virgin. But um, he was no more depraved than anybody else, as it were. Wow. But but Plutarch, if you want to compare Plutarch with the Historia Augusta, was a good researcher. He wasn't making things up. He was a good writer, so to that extent he was embellishing. But he wasn't making stuff up. He was a good researcher. And although professedly a biographer, not a historian, as anybody knows who's written biography, you have to deal with a lot of history. So you get, we get a lot of very useful historical facts from it. We spoke how there are like the five good emperors, like there was Hadrian, maybe Trajan. There's a series of emperors that didn't have male heirs. So they did adoptions like Antoninus Pius and Marcus and Hadrian's, Hadrian's in the middle of that. And they all worked out like the, history says five good emperors. So how ironic yeah. is it that Nova, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus, Marcus. Marcus. Yeah, I don't, I, I can't explain this. I don't know enough. Uh, Roman history of that period. Um, you know, I chiefly focus on Greek stuff. Okay, but um, but but, some, but somebody must have addressed this problem. Of course, in a sense, they did have heirs because they were adopted sons, so they did have heirs. It's not right to say they didn't have heirs, but I have no idea. Was it deliberate policy? Were they afraid that you know, if they had two sons, um, you know, when they died, the two sons would start a civil war? But I mean, that could have happened with an adopted son, surely. Or maybe they kept it to only one adopted son, except in the case of Lucius and Marcus. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a puzzle to me. Some, uh, some historians must have addressed the issue. I, I just need to stumble upon it one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just big picture, how ironic is it that Marcus actually has a male heir, Commodus, and he goes into <laughs> the sea and he's, a tr and he's, he's, by all things I've seen or read, or he, he's, he was a disaster. How, how was, ironic is that? It's, it is ironic, um, but um, like Heliogabalus, his reign came to an end through assassination. Mm -hmm. 
They're not afraid to move. You look at one thing about the Romans. They're not afraid to move on quickly, right? I think they said they, they would just chisel the head off the statue and put the new head on. Like it is that job was not for long. Oh my gosh, if you didn't yeah. have that game together. Um, yeah. Getting to your introduction, you mentioned in the introduction, one thing that struck me, uh, you mentioned the difference between high philosophy and low philosophy. I know that's your term. How do you describe the difference between the two? It's borrowed terminology. But, um, okay, there is a very, very clear distinction. Epictetus is a brilliant illustration of this, and I'll come to that. High philosophy is the really technical, scientific and philosophical work that the Stoics, I mean, this applies actually to all schools of philosophy, but we're talking about Stoicism. So it's the really technical work that the Stoics were doing in the three fields, three areas into which they divided philosophy as a subject, which are logic, physics, and ethics. Logic isn't just logic as we understand it, but everything, all the tools that you need to get to the truth of the matter. Physics is all the laws of the universe, and so that includes theology, and ethics is ethics, how to be a good person, how to live a better life. Mm -hmm. Now, high Stoic philosophy, as I say, consisted of technical treatises, a lot of them written by Chrysippus, the third head of the school in the, uh, in the third century BC. And it's very, very difficult. Well, let's come to Epictetus, because he was both a high and a low philosopher. So he, he ran a school in Western Greece called Nicopolis. And in the mornings, he taught high philosophy. He had his students study Chrysippus and other earlier treatises and other relevant treatises on those three subjects, physics, uh, logic, and ethics. But in the afternoons, as he was walking around or, or being in a, in a classroom with his students, he delivered the discourses, which are delivered spontaneously and are only ethical. They are only about how to improve your life and you know the exercises you need to do and the disciplines that you need and so on and so forth. And they are so rigidly only ethical that he actually says, there's no point in reading Chrysippus if you can't put it into practice. That's what Epictetus is constantly saying. So all we get in Marcus is low philosophy. The ethical aspect, he was using stoicism as a way of improving himself as a human being and as an emperor. Um, in fact, he even says at one point, I can't remember the, the exact reference, he even admits that he's not very really good at logic and physics. <laughs> so you see, the difference is that Epictetus was a professional philosopher. Marcus was an amateur. Amazing. The slave was the professional and the emperor was the amateur. It's so crazy. And then the low philosophy too is more like practical, just from my street view. Yes. It's yes. like, how can someone who has a family and just live a better life and, and, and just kind of live in the moment and, and control what you can control and adapt to the rest where that high philosophy, you, you're like, oh, I love philosophy. Then you take a philosophy course in college. Then they ask these theoretical questions like, what's the meaning of life? And you, you, you get spun around these theoretical concepts that really have nothing to do about living a better life. It's just like this big, like abstract thinking. So that, does that make sense? Yeah, I've I've always believed that. Particularly, I was converted by a book I read quite a long time ago by a man called Jacob Needleman, Real Philosophy. And yeah, he's making that point very clearly. He he says that you know what's called philosophy nowadays isn't philosophy at all, um, at least as the ancients understood it. I mean, because philosophy 
nowadays is something you know it's conducted in classrooms and seminars and it's critical and just trying to clarify things it's not trying to make you a better person yeah because you could read meditations and pick a couple quotes out and be a better person you could like clear your mind think things differently but like you get those those high philosophy textbooks you could read half of that and have no idea what they're talking about like just the <laughs> yeah, average person could get nothing from that and you're like i don't know why i'm reading this that's yeah. funny how about this no, that's right how confident are you that Marcus never meant this to be published or discovered? And then the, the caveat is, if so, why would he write this in Greek, his second language, or at least not his native language, and not in his native Latin? So what are your thoughts there? Okay, second question first, because that's a, an easy, short answer. He wrote in Greek because Greek was the language of philosophy. Seneca, I think, was unique. In writing in Latin, or at least unique prior to to Marcus's time, at any rate. So Greek was still very much it was still the language of of history writing as well, despite how many Latin histor Latin writing historians. Um, so that's why he wrote in Greek. Now I'm pretty confident. I'm no I'm more than pretty confident. I'm very confident. I was a confident that one can be under the circumstances that he did not intend meditations for publication first. It's an intensely private journal. Second, he refers on several occasions to things that only he could know about. Here's one little snippet from 1.7. He says he's thanking Rusticus. From him, he says he got adopting an unaffected style in one's letters, as in the letter written by him from Sinuessa to my mother. Now, and there, there are quite a few uh, occasions like that throughout meditations where he refers to something that would be absolutely meaningless to any other reader than himself. So, thirdly, it's very repetitive, but there are very good reasons for that. That was part of the stoic exercise of, of drumming the most important points into you by repetition. And But again, you don't publish a book that, that's, that is that repetitious. And fourthly, and perhaps as important as any other reason, what Marcus says it's altogether too revealing of personal issues, especially his struggle with anger and the, and the difficulties he found coping with other people. As I said earlier, he occasionally savages the people around him, calling them lies and crooks and so on. And no one, and especially an emperor whose position depended to a large extent on others' perception of him, witnessed the assassination of Congress, etc. No one would have, an emperor would not have shown these sides of himself to other people. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think that's pretty watertight. Yeah. So basically just to recap there, it's intensely private. He talks about things only, he references things only he would know about. Very repetitive kind of drumming in control. You control, like you don't worry about the opinions of others. And then lastly, his perception, if it would ever got out there that he, what he thought of the people he's trying to influence, that would not go good for an emperor. Yeah. No. Uh, no, no. Thanks for sharing that. That's great. <laughs> not being an educated scholar by any means, but like a couple stoic terms to translate. So if we're reading meditations, what do you think Marcus means by, you see this a lot, um, live in accordance with nature? Like you see yeah, that a lot. What do you, what, what's, what's that mean? Actually, I must've been wrong earlier when I said he uses Epictetus's phrase more than any other stoic term, because he must use live in accordance with nature more than any other. It's a very common theme. I think that saying is a clever one. I think it's deliberately, I mean, it's an old Stoic saying, Marcus didn't invent it. I think it's deliberately ambiguous between nature with a small n, human nature, 
and nature with a capital N, the universe at large, the world around us. Now, the Stoics believed that the universe was a rationally ordered system under the guidance of divine providence. So, to live in accordance with nature with a capital N is to align yourself with God's providence. And to live in accordance with your own human nature is to live rationally because each of us is essentially their reasoning part. So since universal nature is rational, and since the core of one's human nature is rational, living in accord with one's human nature is at the same time living in accord with nature at large. And I think that's what he meant by it. How about this? Another term you see a lot, the logos. How would you describe the logos? What is that? What does that mean? Logos. Both of those are short. Okay. I think I've already answered that just by way, because again, it could, Logos could have an initial capital L or a small l. With a capital L, it means the reason with a capital R that steers the universe, i.e., okay. God, providence, etc., etc., all words yeah. for the same thing. And with a small l, it means the human rational and reasoning faculty. Five, 527 is quite nice. I've got a bookmark in that one. Live with the gods, as a quotation we don't know where from. The man who lives with the gods is the one whose soul is constantly on display to them as content with its lot and obedient to the will of the guardian spirit, the fragments of himself that Zeus has granted every person to act as his custodian and command center. And in each of us, this is mind and reason. Mm -hmm. And that's one use of, of the Greek word logos was the uh, last word in that. That entry, that word, especially with a Philly accent logo, logos. <laughs> I might, I might need some time to get that right. <laughs> it's not, no, it's not a Philly accent necessarily. Um, Americans have a habit of lengthening uh, vowels, and there's not. I mean, I note, I note this a lot because um, in modern Greek, there's no long O either. So even words, even words in modern Greek that are written with an omega, which mm -hmm. in ancient Greek is a long O sound. Uh, so a word like thank you, which is ευχαριστώ. Americans tend to lengthen that last O, if Caristo. It's yeah. just what happens. Uh, so, <laughs> so true. So true. Just out of curiosity, how many languages do you speak? Oh, nothing. In English and my modern Greek's pretty good, but far from perfect. Okay. Interesting. I can read French. I mean, yeah. academic French. Pretty impressive. How about this last question about the translations? It is probably an unfair question, but I got to ask you. When you were translating, was there a line that stuck out to you? Like, do you have a favorite passage in meditations? Is that a fair question? I, well, not because I've got several favorite passages and it would take too long to read them all out. But I like 1226 a lot. Okay. It's, it's a very concise, it's a bit long. I mean, longer than the ones I've read so far, but it's still a very concise summary of Marcus's philosophy. Go ahead. Please read. When it. you find something, can I do it? Oh, please. Absolutely. Yeah. When you find something hard to bear, there are things you're forgetting. First, that everything happens in compliance with universal nature. Second, that the wrong being done to you is someone else's concern. Third, that everything that happens has always happened and will always happen and is happening right now all over the world. Fourth, that the relationship between any one person and the rest of the human race is particularly close, not in the sense that they share blood and seed, but because they have intelligence in common. Fifth, that every person's mind is a god and is an emanation of the divine. Sixth, that nothing really belongs to anyone, but his child, his body, and his very soul have come from heaven. 
Seventh, that everything is as you take it to be. Eighth, that the present moment is all the life that anyone has and all the life that he loses. I love that at the end. The present moment is all you have and all you lose. It's like it's not like if something happens and you're in your head's like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to do this 20 years from now with this person because this happened. But like you only have the present moment, right? Nothing was really stolen from you. It was just you live in the present moment and that's all we ever have. And I think that's yeah. so stoic. Two of my favorite, like just things that stick out when I go through and they're pretty brief. I love the one, uh, notebook four, number seven, remove the belief that I've been harmed and harm goes away. Basically, I, that's just so like, yeah. you know, if, if you don't feel your harms, you're not, I, I, that's just so powerful where you can control who harms you and who doesn't. Um, you, you, you can change, what, you can change the past like that as well. Um, I, I had a miserable time at school as a teenager. I mean, really foul. And, and for years after that, I was bitter. I was bitter because of the, you know, not, not bitter person, but I mean, when I looked back at my schooling, I was bitter. I was, I was angry with the people who were horrible to me, my schoolmate. You know, you, you get teased if you're a geek. You know? <laughs> but then I changed the past. I looked back and said, no, you know, that was, that's my reaction. And I, can, I don't have to react to it like that. So now I'm not so bitter about that at all. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great perspective. I love this one too. Notebook seven, number thirty-eight. You translate. It's pointless to let mere things make you angry, since things lack the ability to care. Like <laughs> that's so great. Like why make it? A, they don't care. The circumstances don't care if you're angry or not. Might as well not be angry. Uh, so uh, so good. Which which one was that? That was notebook seven, number thirty-eight. I've forgotten that one. I thought that's just oh, it's just so great. Like the circumstances don't care. Why should you? Like, why should you make them upset you? Yeah. It's a quotation and, and, from Euripides. That's why I didn't remember it. And then the last one too, Bill Belichick. He's a coach of the New England Patriots. He has like seven Super Bowls. And he's like, do your job. Like your job is to do your job. Sounds like Marcus Aurelius. You look at uh notebook eleven, last quote, number five, uh, notebook eleven. What's your job? being good like just be a good person just do but to me it's like do your job like be good that's your job that's so yeah. good now i appreciate that thank you for sharing that robin was hoping to just to wrap up here some fun wrap-up questions <laughs> so, so our listeners can get, get to know you a little bit more as a person oh uh, robin when you need <laughs> to clear your mind and recharge your body what do you do well, for many years, I used to go out and run long distances, but my body's letting me down in that respect these days. Um, Bike rides. But, I, a, yeah. but I do but I do have about 120 olive trees to look after. Really? And, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, so as I look out my window, it's dark now. I look, overlook trees, some of the mine, and then the sea. That is spectacular. Now, do you do olive oil? Do you make olive yes. oil? Yes. Yes. Uh, do you sell it or what do you, you well i used to i used to send it to uh, a friend in london who distributed it to you know foodie friends around london but after brexit that's uh no longer well it's still possible and i would probably still make it i mean we're not talking big quantities here at all this is yeah. a, only a hobby you know i'm a writer yeah. that's what i do it's uh but i would still make a profit but the paperwork is ridiculous i would have to fill in forms for three different customs controls really pay a fee each time and things like that which would 
eat into my i was only making like 500 pounds from it anyway so i thought bloody hell no I'm not no <laughs> it's not worth it yeah let me see the juice ain't worth the olive isn't worth the squeeze right that's the same <laughs> <laughs> good one <laughs> so now I, this, I still said it but now i said it to the press okay uh, for not much money awesome that's a no, thanks for sharing that how about this i mean you're an author you're a huge reader do you have a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? I think those are two separate questions. My yeah. favorite book is The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. Awesome. Um, um, I mean, even as a child, I read it about, I read it a dozen times before I was 21. I remember that statistic. Okay. Uh, but I wouldn't say it changed my life. Okay. I'm going to give a slightly perverse or inverted answer. I think the book that changed my life most was the first book I wrote. Because then I then I knew that I really, really, really wanted to be a writer and could go about it with slightly more confidence and that it wasn't just a fantasy. And I knew that I would do whatever it took to keep at it, uh, which involved shortly after that, giving up the only permanent job I'd ever had in my life mm -hmm. <laughs> and in order to sit at home and start writing. What, what was your first book? Was it, uh, it was a translation of Plato's Philebus for Penguin Classics. Wow. And now, I've, now I find I've written over 50 books, Joe. Damn, that's phenomenal. Got to get off track here, but I know you write a lot about Alexander the Great. How do you think Alexander the Great and Marcus would get along? They're in the same room. I think Marcus uh, would be icily polite to him. Okay. <laughs> icily polite. Uh, I haven't written so much about Alexander the Great. My wife and I together did a, a young reader's biography, but I've written more about the period after Alexander, when his, when his generalismos, you know, fought it out. Icily polite, that's great. How about this? Most successful people like yourself have a routine, either to start their day or to end their day. What's your routine? What's either the beginning of your day or the end of your day look like? How, how do you routine your day? Very boring. Uh, I get up make myself a cup of tea, feed the cats, and then go upstairs to my computer, which is a, that's my commute. Takes about 30 seconds. It's <laughs> tough. Um, and then I read headlines and articles from, always from the Guardian newspaper. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm not itching to get on with either breakfast or work after that, then I'll read some Al Jazeera as well. Okay. That's it. Very dull. Ah, sounds great. No, sometimes dull is good. How about this? Hmm. As you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? I have to say that every book I've ever written has always been the most exciting project that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. But I'm particularly excited to be doing what I'm doing at the moment, which is a fresh translation of Aristotle's Nicomachean and Ethics. Oh, cool. Not How easy in places. Hmm. How long like, does something like that take you to get through to the point where you're confident to send it to the publisher? Um, I think this will take good seven or eight months. And that's working at it pretty consistently. And also, I'm not writing the introduction or at least some of the notes because I don't feel myself to be... There's another a guy who's actually best known for his work on stoicism, John Sellers is going to do the introduction and notes. You've probably come across some of his work. Mm -hmm. So then I've got to then I'll send it to him. 
and wait for him to finish everything that he has to do as well. Good luck with that. Look forward to seeing that. Thank you. How about this? We spoke about so much. Marcus Aurelius, history, stoicism, Epictetus. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? I think I would repeat those Marcus's words, or at least the summary of Marcus's philosophy that I, that I spoke earlier. Accept what you can't do anything about and what you can change for the better. Change for Wow, that is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, here's a fun one. Robin, if you could spend mm. a day with anyone, famous, not famous, alive or dead, who would you spend the day with? Probably Socrates. I'm itching, always itching to know. I mean, I've written articles about the dubious historical validity of both Plato's and Xenophon's portraits of Socrates. So I'm itching to know what he was really like. Because Plato, Plato and Xenophon were writing fiction, I'm absolutely certain. Really? How because so? for, for, a st for a start, they can't both be right. They give very different portraits of Socrates. They can't mm -hmm. both be right. So all these writers, Plato, Xenophon, and the other lost Socratic writers, were using Socrates as a mouthpiece or something to express their own views. So I'd like to know what he was really. And then what would you do? If you spent the day with him, what would you do? How would you hang out with him? Well, I think we'd sit in a taverna and drink some wine. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that sounds like a great day. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds like a great day. Thanks for sharing that. Here it is. The last question. Robin Waterfield. It's a fun one. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Robin, if you yes. had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Nothing, because I absolutely in a million years wouldn't do this. I think it's really deeply stupid to write words on your body. I don't mind pictures at all, but I think it's really deeply stupid to write words on your body because anything you write or, or any girlfriend's name, you're yeah. going to change your mind at some point. If you write your favorite quotation from Marcus, you're going to find an even more better quotation from Epictetus. So what are you going to do? Yeah. No, I, I, think, I, do, I do think it's really stupid. Okay. I'm sorry if I'm treading on any corns if you've got a quotation on your body. I, no, I got nothing. I, I'm not tatted. I, I am untatted, but uh, I appreciate No, I appreciate that. Robin Waterfield, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's such an honor to speak with you. I admired your work from afar for, for quite some time. Um, I will put the, the, the meditations, the annotated edition is just an instant classic. Appreciate you writing this. Thanks for... Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you. Robin, if people are looking for you and what you do online and your books, where can we find you? I have a website, uh, robinwaterfield.com. Straightforward. Awesome. What I'll do is I'm going to put the book. I'm going to put the website. I'll put it all in the show notes. Grab a copy of his meditations. It's awesome. Robin Waterfield, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Such an honor to speak with you and wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you very much. And thank you once again for having me. I had a good time. Thanks, Joe. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Robin Waterfield. Hope you enjoyed it. If you could sign up for the new Built Not Born blog, one blog post 
each week sent directly to your mailbox. I call it the episode x-ray. I will take the best ideas from each guest, put it in a little really tight newsletter that you could read in under two minutes with all the relevant links and cool books and gears and projects that the guest spoke about, sent directly to your inbox once a week, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, built, not born blog, sign up. Talk soon.